Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome, everybody, to another live Peter Schiff Show podcast on a Wednesday night. You know, this is going to be the only podcast I do this week. I'm going to be away over the weekend. And it kind of harkens back to the olden days of Wall Street Unspun, the midweek market update. I remember doing that uh, shortwave radio show, which is where it started. And I did it. Every Wednesday night, I think it was either 8 or 9 o'clock on Wednesday, and, and I did it for an hour, and I took calls. But that was the very first thing I did. And you can still listen to some of those old Wall Street unspuns. I think they're still up there. We used to keep them on the, on the website, the Europac website, for a while. I don't think they're, they're there anymore. Uh, but I always did that on a Wednesday, and so that's what I'm doing tonight with this podcast. And I want to start by talking about the inflation numbers that were released earlier today. We got the April CPI that came out and you know they've been talking about this number all week, right? Everybody is waiting on pins and needles for this government report card on inflation. And as I've said many, many times, you know, you don't want your kids to grade their own report card. That's why you don't want the government coming up with the inflation numbers, because it really is a report on the economy and the government is fudging the numbers. And of course, you know, the government doesn't have to cheat. They don't have to lie. The CPI does that for them. It's not like the CPI comes out with a high number and then they they lie about it and they report a lower number. They don't have to do that. The way the CP, CPI was engineered, it was designed to come out with a low number. So they don't have to cheat. The, the CPI does that all by itself because they already rigged it uh, when they fixed it in uh, the early 1990s with the Boskin Commission. And they, you know, they tweaked it since the initial fix uh, to uh, rig it even more. But anyway, be that as it may, the markets still pay attention to this number because the Fed pays attention to this number and everybody wants to 
figure out what the Fed's going to do. And so they look at the numbers that the Fed claims it pays attention to. And of course, uh, the media pays attention to the CPI as well. And so the markets were looking for the CPI. And everybody is looking for some indication that inflation is coming down, despite the fact that all the evidence is that it's not, even though it is not as high as it once was. At one point, we were looking at 9% year over year, and now we're just looking at five. But five is still a high number. Five is way above the 2% target. And for those of you who don't recall, when Nixon imposed wage and price controls back in the 1970s, the initial controls went in when inflation was above 4%. They didn't wait for it to be you know, double digit. It was 4% when they were panicking. Well, we're well above that now. So to say that 5% represents some type of success because it's not nine uh, is completely wrong. It, it, you know, Even if you forget about the fact that if the government says five, it's actually 10. Five is bad enough, even if it was only that bad. And it's nowhere near the, the 2% target. But in any event, the markets are just looking for this number because what they're hoping is that the Fed will pause officially or start cutting rates because they can declare victory in their war against inflation. So the expectation was for a 0.4% increase in prices in April. Now, that's against a 0.1% increase in March. So if the Fed were making progress, why would that number be going up? And in fact, a 0.4% increase in a single month that's a big jump. That's nothing to brag about. Annualize that. That's a high number. Anyway, the number came out exactly as expected, 0.4. However, the good news that the markets initially seized on was that the year-over-year -year number, which was expected to be 5.0, came out at 4.9. Now, to me, there's probably a rounding error in there. I don't even think there's a difference between 5 and 4.9. But now there's no 5 handle. All of a sudden, they're saying, hey, we got a 4, four handle on the CPI. And the markets like this. Oh, yes, we're making progress. We're at 4.9. That was the only bit of good news in this report because everything else was exactly as expected. The core ex food and energy was up 0.4. Again, taken on its own, that's still a big number, uh, you know, when you multiply it by 12 to annualize it. And year-over-year -year core was 5.5. That was what they expected. Now, it was slightly better than the 5.6 from the prior month, but that hardly indicates that the Fed is any closer to 2%. Because even though 5.5% isn't 9%, it's not 2%. And I think that what we're seeing now, and I've been talking about this on the show, this is trough CPI. We're kind of banging along the bottom. This is about as successful, I think, as the Fed's going to get, really as close as it's going to get to 2%. It might get a little closer. We may see the numbers drop uh, lower down. I really doubt that we're going to get any number with a three-handle on it because I think long before that happens, you're going to see the dollar tank and then you're going to see a resurgence in commodity prices, which are going to push on 
the CPI, plus you still have all this inflation that is baked into the cake. We've been flooding the economy with inflation uh, for more than a decade. It's a big pipeline. And uh, we haven't even come close to feeling the effects of all that inflation. So consumer prices have to continue to rise uh, to catch up to the increase in the money supply that is the driving force behind what's happening in prices. But anyway, when this number came out, the markets were initially excited. As soon as we got that 4.9 handle or four handle, the S&P jumped. The Dow futures were up better than 200. Gold rose 10, $12 an ounce. You know, Bitcoin jumped too. Everything was up. Everybody was excited and bonds rose. Yields fell down because the knee jerk reaction was, oh, this is good. Now, of course, from my perspective, it isn't good because it doesn't prove anything. This wasn't a meaningful improvement in the numbers. And I think after the investors had a little bit more time to think about it, they kind of came around to potentially that uh, position and then the market sold off. The Dow was down 200 points at one point uh, in early in the morning. So it lost those gains. But by the end of the day, the Dow was down only slightly, but the NASDAQ was up better than 1%. Tech stocks surged, uh, well, I mean, 1%, but that's still a big move. Uh, the S&P was up about half a percent. So the markets concluded that this is good news uh, because it means that the Fed is going to be able to start cutting rates sooner because they're winning the battle on inflation. Well, again, the reality is the numbers show that the Fed is losing, but not just these numbers. All the numbers I went over on my last podcast that have nothing to do with the CPI, but all prove that inflation is 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 entrenched, that it is not going away. It's not getting anywhere near 2%. And nothing that the Fed has done thus far is going to bend this curve. Uh, that inflation is here. It's going to get worse. And, and it's not just in the United States. This is a global problem because central banks all around the world have made the same mistake and they have enabled governments to profligately spend money. And, and as a result of all this extra spending and all this money printing and all this easy credit, the world is dealing with an inflation problem. I'll talk more about that on the other side of this quick commercial break. So don't go anywhere. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, so as I mentioned before this break, the initial reaction to what was perceived as better than expected inflation news, meaning lower number, gold rallied. Again, why? Gold is an inflation hedge. So gold should rally when inflation is higher than expected, not, not lower. But in the perverse world that we live in, everybody is focusing on the Fed. Lower inflation means the Fed can cut rates sooner, and that's perceived as being good for gold. Higher inflation means they can't cut rates, and that's supposed to be bad for gold. The reality is high inflation is better for gold because gold is an inflation hedge. And what high inflation shows you 
is not that the Fed is going to have to fight harder to win. It shows you that the Fed is losing the fight against inflation, and that is bullish for gold. So traders still have this whole thing wrong. That's why whenever you see a sell-off in the price of gold on hotter-than-expected inflation numbers, you want to buy into that dip. And in fact, gold, which was up $10-$12 early in the morning, sold off. It was down better than $10 when the market sold off, when uh, people started to think, oh, wait a minute, uh, this isn't a good enough improvement. Maybe we won't get the cuts. And then, and then gold sold off. So it's always making the wrong move. But it was still a buying opportunity. As I'm speaking right now, gold's trading around $2,033 an ounce. It ended down maybe a couple of bucks uh, at the end of the day. And now it's regained that it's up about three bucks in the evening. But one of the other reasons that we might have seen a sell-off in the price of gold today was some supposedly tough talk on inflation coming from Christine Lagarde uh, out of the ECB, who in an interview said, we're going to have to hike rates at our next meeting because inflation is still a problem, which is a massive understatement. The year-over-year CPI in the eurozone is 7%. That's down from its highs, but it's still well above the 5% that we've got in the U.S. So they're at 7%. But the ECB still has its main uh, interest rate, its deposit rate. It's three and a quarter. We're five and a quarter. So we're 200 basis points higher, but inflation, the way they measure it in Europe, is uh, 200 basis points higher. So the the interest rates in the Eurozone are still negative. You're at three and a quarter rate and seven inflation, right? You're three uh, and three quarters negative rates. Now, the U.S., finally, we actually have a slight positive rate. We got five and a quarter Fed funds and we got 4.9 inflation. So it's slightly positive. Now, of course, after tax, it's still negative, which I think is more important because a lot of people are paying taxes on the interest that they earn on U.S. treasuries. They're paying federal tax on on that interest. Well, you don't get to deduct inflation from your tax. So if you're collecting, let's say, 5% pre-tax, and after tax, you're left with 3%. Well, if inflation is 4.9, you got negative rates. And so a lot of people still have negative rates on an after-tax basis, which is really what's important because that's what you get. You get the after-tax yield. You don't get the pre-tax. Uh, so that's what's more important from the perspective of the lender. But of course, all the rates are negative if we use a real inflation rate. They only appear positive because the government is lying about inflation through the CPI. So rates are still negative everywhere, uh, but they're even more negative in, in the Eurozone. So clearly they raise rates, but it's not going to work. They're not going to raise rates enough to fight inflation in the Eurozone either, because all of the budget deficits uh, throughout Europe are continuing. None of these governments are cutting back on their spending. And all of this excess spending has been um, accommodated by the Fed, I mean, by the ECB. Without the ECB's 0% policy and their asset purchase program, a lot of these countries would have been forced to act fiscally responsible. The reason they didn't have to do it is because the ECB enabled all this profligacy, which has unleashed all this inflation. Inflation is the consequence of all these deficits uh, that were paid for 
uh, by the ECB. And now the Europeans are going to be living with the consequences for years and years to come. So it doesn't matter about all this tough talk. Inflation is a problem that's not going away in Europe and it's not going away in the United States. Now, one person I think who understands that inflation is a problem is Warren Buffett. And the reason I want to talk about Warren Buffett is because he's, or they just concluded their annual meeting for shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. And during that annual meeting, Warren Buffett was probably as pessimistic as I've I've heard him. I mean, he's normally kind of like a cheerleader for the uh, U.S. economy and for the markets in general. But he had a very a somber tone at this meeting. Uh, and he forecast tough times for the market, for the economy. He said that most of his businesses, he expects to see uh, some earnings weakness. And so, you know, he is worried about the economy. And one of the reasons he's worried is because of inflation. Uh, and he has talked about owning Berkshire as an inflation hedge because it has real businesses, real assets. You know, a lot of people uh, think that Warren Buffett doesn't like gold because he says that gold does not compare favorably to stocks as a long-term investment. And I, I agree with him. Gold is not an investment. Gold's money. Gold's a commodity. An investment is a, a business that generates income or it's investment property that, that generates rents, right? That, that's an investment. Gold isn't an investment. You can own gold. It's a store of value, but it, it isn't going to generate returns for you uh, the way an investment is. So Warren Buffett doesn't like gold as an investment, but he does prefer gold as uh, a currency, as a store of value to dollars or euros or yen, you know, he, Warren Buffett doesn't just hold a lot of cash, although now he is. And, and, and in theory, Warren Buffett should be exchanging his cash for gold because the reason Warren Buffett is holding a lot of cash is that he thinks stocks are going down and he wants to hold some dry powder. He really should be holding his dry powder in gold because I know that Warren Buffett understands that as a store of value, gold is better than cash. Now, maybe he thinks that earning 5% in a money market, that that's better than earning zero in gold. I don't think so, because I think gold is going to rise by more than 5% a year, given all the inflation. And so that Warren Buffett would be better off keeping his dry powder in gold than in cash. Uh, and the reason he's doing that is hoping to buy actual investments in the future at a better price then he could buy those investments today. I think it would be better for Berkshire shareholders if he did that using gold, uh, not dollars. And maybe at some point he's going to start doing that because he doesn't dislike gold uh, as an alternative to the dollar. He just dislikes it as an alternative to stocks, dividend-paying stocks. And over the long run, he's right. Over long periods of time, if you're a smart investor and you buy good businesses cheap and collect dividends, you will do better than just holding gold in a vault. But over short periods of time, 
you may do better holding gold depending on stock valuations, you know, where you are in the business cycle, what's going on with inflation. And I think Buffett might figure that out. But one of the things I was laughing because I was watching on, on CNBC and uh, all of the, the uh, Bitcoin shills that work there were talking about Warren Buffett and they're making fun of him because he's still negative on Bitcoin. And, and they're saying, you know, he says all these crazy things about Bitcoin. No, he doesn't say anything crazy about Bitcoin. Everything he says about Bitcoin is perfectly sane. But these guys are dismissing him. They're entertainers. They're, they're journalists, right? I mean, I mean they're, they're, this guy is supposedly the oracle. He's one of the most successful investors in, in U.S. history. And these guys are just a bunch of reporters who are, you know, slash entertainers. And they think that this guy has nothing valuable to say. Anyway, let me take a quick break. I got a lot more that I'm going to talk about. So stick around. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Now, one thing that Warren Buffett also spoke about at the shareholder meeting is he weighed in on de-dollarization. A lot of people are talking about the dollar losing its reserve status. And so Warren Buffett, I don't know if he was asked about it or if he just uh, opined on it. But Warren Buffett said on that score, he doesn't think that the dollar is in danger of losing that because he doesn't see any other currency that is positioned to take the dollar's place. And, and, and again, on that, I agree with Warren Buffett. I don't think that any currency should replace the dollar as the reserve currency. But the problem with Warren Buffett's vision is he's, he's looking in the wrong place. He's looking for other currencies and seeing, well, there's problems with the euro, there's problems with the yen, problems with the RMB, and so the dollar is safe because these other fiat currencies, you know, they've got problems of their own. Well, he should look beyond fiat currencies, again, to real money, the alternative that Warren Buffett fails to recognize is gold. Gold is the alternative. And in fact, look at the numbers. Central banks are now buying gold at a record pace. That information just came out. But despite the fact that central banks are buying gold at a record pace, they still don't own nearly as much as they have in the past. They have a lot of gold to buy to catch up to where they need to be, which is much, much higher than they are right now. So the world is already in the process of replacing U.S. dollars with gold. And the dollar did not replace another fiat currency. It replaced gold. Prior to Brenton Wood, 
all the currencies were backed by gold. Not another fiat currency, gold. And when the United States was able to convince the world to adopt the dollar standard, it was because the dollar was not only backed by gold, but convertible on demand into gold. $35 got you an ounce of gold. And then Nixon defaulted, 1971, right? All this talk about how the US government has never defaulted. We defaulted on our promise to pay gold. Federal Reserve notes were notes. They were obligations of the US government or the Fed to pay gold. We defaulted and paid nothing. So when you're supposed to pay something and you pay nothing, it's a default. So we defaulted in 1971, spent over 50 years. Uh, and now I think uh, the world is going to reject uh, uh, fiat dollars. Uh, you know, we told the world that you have to have dollars without gold. And now the world is going to tell us, well, we don't want your dollars anymore. Uh, we're going back to gold. And, and so Warren Buffett doesn't see that. And a lot of people are missing that alternative. They just assume that the dollar is safe because the euro or the yen are no good. And, and, and they're overlooking uh, what's obvious, and that is gold. Anyway, though, I want to switch gears and talk about this uh, new, uh, I don't know if they're revelations, but to me, it seems like uh, very uh, concrete proof uh, that President Joe Biden, while he was vice president of the United States, was basically the patriarch of an organized crime family. The Republicans had a press conference today in which they presented a very compelling case uh, that the president uh, and his family committed crimes, and, and, and particularly Joe Biden, right? because he was the vice president. He's the one that took an oath. He's the one that peddled his influence, not even to Americans, but to foreigners, to foreign interests. He basically accepted over $10 million in bribes, which is basically what this was, over the eight years he was vice president. And the way he was able to launder all of these this criminal uh, money, because this is a crime, earning money this way. When you're the vice president and you are selling influence, you are using your authority for the advantage of people who have paid you money, directly paid you money to do something, and then you do something in exchange for that bribe, that is illegal. And then when you try to disguise the illegal nature of that money through complicated structures, you, you are laundering that money. You are committing multiple crimes. And I think the Republicans have already made a very compelling case that you don't need to be Perry Mason uh, to, to get a conviction of, of, of Joe Biden. After he was elected president, the Republicans reported that the Biden family created 16 shell companies, all these LLCs with different names, but not a single legitimate business purpose for any of these companies. I mean, first of all, why do they need 16 companies, right? And now these 16 companies with no legitimate business purpose, no operation, no product, no service, they all start getting paid over $10 million. And who knows, maybe it's a lot more than 10 million. I don't know, I said over 10 million. And all the money is coming from foreign entities, right? China or other countries 
are paying all this money to these shell companies. And then the shell companies start moving the money around without any purpose among each other, right? Money goes from one to the other. And then ultimately, it gets distributed to Joe Biden's family, just his family. Nine different family members receive money from this, these 16 shell companies. You got his brother that got money, his daughter-in-law, his wife, even his ex-wife got in on the action. His grandkids were getting money. Nieces and nephews were getting money. What were they doing? They weren't doing anything. The only person who was probably doing something was the big guy, Joe Biden. Maybe to a lesser extent, you know, Bo, you know, his son, Hunter, you know, maybe was able to throw a little weight around Washington, D.C. because everybody knew, you know, that he was uh, the big guy's son. And so maybe, you know, he could lean on people in, in, in place of his dad. But without his dad, you know, he, he didn't have any muscle. But I'm sure that Joe Biden uh, was delivering because these uh, payments would not have continued for eight years. I mean, he's getting all this money. People are paying him uh, on multiple occasions. Obviously, they're getting something for their money. They're not just, you know, giving all this money to the Bidens, you know, because they like them. Obviously, they're paying for something. They're not fools. They're not going to give over $10 million and get nothing in return. Now, what's, what's really amazing to me is even more so than what Biden did, because, you know, I, I, you know this doesn't surprise me that you have a criminal and a liar who's a politician. I mean, that, 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 that shouldn't shock anybody, right, that, that Biden would do this. I mean, think about Joe Biden. He's been in politics most of his life. <clears throat> he had six terms in the U.S. Senate, 36 years <clears throat> before being vice president for eight years. So, you know, that's more than half the guy's life has been in the U.S. government. Now, what did he do before he went into politics? Well, he was a student. He went to law school. And then he was a lawyer for a few years before, I think he did one term, you know, in local government before he ended up in the United States Senate. But you don't get elected six times you know, telling the truth. In order to be as successful as Joe Biden was in politics, you got to lie. You got to be a really good liar to get elected that many times. And Joe's a good liar. I mean, after all, he started out as a lawyer, right? There's an old joke about lawyers. How do you know a lawyer is lying? His lips are moving. But, you know, one of the reasons that lawyers have to be good liars is because lawyers have to argue their client's side of any controversy, whether it's civil or whether it's criminal. Now, of course, a lot of times your, your argument is BS. You, you, somebody hires you and, and they're wrong, right? Either you're a criminal uh, defense lawyer and you got a guilty client and you got to lie and pretend he's innocent, or you know, you're defending somebody in a civil action and you know that they probably did it, but you have to argue that they didn't, right? You've got to argue your client's position, even if you're arguing a lie. So to be a good lawyer, you got to be a good liar. That's, that's part of being a lawyer, being a liar. I mean, the words are almost the same, right? And that's why so many lawyers go into politics, because they have a lot of practice lying. And if they're really good at lying, you know, well, well, well then they, uh, they be, they're going to politics. You know, now, 
some lawyers who are really good liars, after they go into politics, then they become judges, right? Because they're, they're lawyers with political connections. And, and so everybody is, is, is lying. So the fact that Biden lied, I mean, it doesn't shock me. You know, and the fact that he took bribes, I mean, a lot of people, that's why they go into government so they could sell their influence, so they could take bribes. Now, a lot of times they wait until they leave, right? They go to Washington, they make a bunch of friends, and then they leave, and then they become lobbyists and they sell their influence that way. Now, that at least, I guess, is legal. What Biden did, he didn't wait until he was out of office. He did all of it while he was still in office while well, he was still the acting vice president. That's what makes this really criminal. But I think what's worse is the way the media is reporting this or not reporting it. Go out there and look at all the mainstream media reports about this. And they all start off with Republicans have no proof that Biden did anything wrong. This is all a witch hunt because at the end of the day, the Republicans can't prove that Joe Biden was in any way connected uh, to all this money which is BS, because they don't have to prove it. It's a circumstantial case. The government doesn't have to find a document where Biden signs a contract where I will do this for you in exchange for this money. You're not going to put a bribe in writing. That's the whole point. Yes, obviously, there was a backroom deal, right? A quid pro quo quo in, in verbally. Right. Couple of people meet and they agree to do something. They don't leave a paper trail. The trail is the money. That's the evidence. The fact that you have 16 companies with no business purpose, performing no services that you know of, selling no products, earning all kinds of money without any invoices. And then you have all of these uh, transactions without any legitimate purpose. And then all the money finds its way into the pockets of Biden family members. Like, is this some kind of coincidence that all this is happening? All of these uh, foreign interests are just lavishing the Bidens with money just, you know, for nothing? Of course, it's obvious what's going on here. Once you show this, you know, this is how governments do uh, money laundering investigations. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, seven governments have investigated my bank for money laundering, and they found no evidence of it. Well, there's plenty of evidence that the Bidens were laundering money. I mean, it's all there. I mean, this is exactly what they look for. Structuring, shell companies, uh, transactions without any legitimate business purpose. That's what was going on. Now, the, 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 the burden now, once you have this, this case, this strong um, uh, case, circumstantial case against the Bidens, it would be up to Joe Biden and his family to now show the legitimate uh, transactions that were taking place. Where are the invoices? You know, you got all this money for doing what? Prove that you did something of value to earn this money. They should have uh, the, the documentations of what they did. I mean, because if I'm going to send somebody millions of dollars, they better send me an invoice. I want to know what I'm paying for, right? I mean, what, what work did you do? I want to make sure you're not overcharging me. Produce those invoices. Produce those documents. They can't do anything. They've got no evidence. So the, the media is focusing on the fact that there is no smoking gun that says 
Here's a contract that we have between Joe Biden and the Chinese, where Joe Biden is going to, you know, pass this legislation or enact this in exchange for this money. There's no way that document is going to exist. That never exists. I know the government probably puts people away for money laundering, for RICO violations, uh, with a lot less evidence than they got against Biden, because they don't have to have that smoking gun. When you can build a, a, a credible, strong, circumstantial case, if, 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 if the person you're accusing can't come up with a rational explanation for what looks obvious, then he's going to be guilty. Yet the media doesn't even want to uh, acknowledge that the president might be guilty. Instead, they're attacking the Republicans. I mean, imagine if this was Trump. Imagine if this happened with the Trump family and all this money uh, was going uh, to, to his kids. I mean, they would be all over I mean, They already are all over Trump for doing nothing. What did Trump do? He paid some money to somebody not to talk about something, a non-disclosure agreement, perfectly legal. They're just thinking, well, did it violate campaign finance laws? That's nothing compared to what Biden was doing. In fact, what Biden was doing is, is much more than Watergate. I mean, Watergate was nothing compared to what Joe Biden obviously did, yet the media doesn't care. You know, meanwhile, you know, everybody is talking about how this jury uh, said that um, uh, President Trump back in the 1990s, uh, I guess, uh, sexually assaulted, did not rape, but was too sexually aggressive uh, with this woman in, in, in Bergdorf Goodman's back in the 1990s. I mean, who the hell knows whether or not this happened? I mean, you know, maybe Trump forgot about it or maybe it did happen, but, you know, who cares? That was in the 1990s. You know, I mean, maybe Donald Trump made a pass at this woman. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. Uh, maybe it went a little far. Who the hell knows? But she didn't say anything about it in the 1990s or the 2000s. She just starts talking about it now. Yet the media wants to make this into a big deal. It was a different world back then uh, than it is now as far as, you know, you know what men could do. Uh, I mean, maybe you got a slap in the face uh, if you were a little bit aggressive, but that was it. I mean, obviously times have changed now, uh, but back then, it, you know, that that that's how it was. But that's nothing. The media wants to focus on this. And of course, you know, this lady is getting, you know, $5 million for defamation, right? I'm in a defamation lawsuit myself. She's getting $5 million because she accused the president of raping her. The president said that's a lie. And now she gets $5 million for defamation. Well, it was a lie because the jury didn't find any evidence of rape. Now, yes, they did claim that there was evidence of harassment, but that's not the same as rape. And, and so isn't he entitled if somebody says, hey, you raped me, can't you say, no, I didn't, that woman's a liar? I mean, now if someone falsely accuses you of rape, you can still be sued for defamation if you call your accuser a liar, even if it turns out that they did lie about the rape, but maybe there's something else that you did that's not nearly as bad as rape, because whatever he's accused of doing is not rape. It's not even close. Rape is really, really bad, right? If you're just if you're just getting a little fresh with, with a woman and, 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 you know, and, and she feels uncomfortable, that's not raping her. I mean, that's, that could be wrong, uh, you know, bad behavior, but it ain't rape. Rape is a whole new level. So if somebody says, yeah, you know, 
he kissed me and I didn't want him to, and he raped me. And then you say, I didn't rape her. And it turns out that you did kiss her, but you didn't rape her. And she accused you of rape. And you said that she was a liar. You were right to call her a liar. It was perfectly legitimate to do that. But now apparently it's not because he was awarded defamation. But the media is making a mountain out of this molehill. Here, Joe Biden has an actual mountain. This is an, a Mount Everest of evidence against Joe Biden. And the media is making a, a molehill out of that mountain by attacking the Republicans for going after the Bidens. When what the Bidens did was wrong, the media should be outraged by this conduct, especially so overt as to what actually took place. And the guy is still in office. Uh, and, and so that, to me, is more outrageous. I mean, the media right, is not reporting the news. It is all fake news. The media is covering up right, the Biden crimes. Now, why are they doing that? Well, obviously, because they don't want to hurt Biden politically, because they don't want to help Trump, because Trump's the most likely person that Biden is going to run against. And the last thing the media wants is a second term for Trump. And so if they have to lie and cover up all this dirt on Joe Biden in order to help ensure that Donald Trump doesn't have another term, well, that's what they're going to do. But that is not what the press is supposed to be here for. The press is supposed to you know, help protect us from corrupt government by reporting on the corruption, by, by keeping some checks and balances on, on, on government. I mean, that's the whole role of a free press, to help protect us from an oppressive government, not to help protect an oppressive government from the people, help an oppressive government cover up their crimes. But that is exactly what the American media is doing. And I think this is really a new low uh, in the way they are covering uh, this. And I'm sure more stuff is gonna come out uh, on, on this investigation as it continues. But one other thing too that I wanted to talk about related to media bias, because I read this long article in The Atlantic and I wasn't really familiar with this story until I read this article. And it's about this guy, Jeff Karpoff, who started this company, DC Solar. And the guy is in jail now. He was sentenced last year. He's got a 30-year uh, federal prison sentence uh, for, for fraud. Or I, I'm not sure exactly what he was convicted of, but he did a lot of bad stuff, and he's got 30 years uh, in prison. But the article goes over this gigantic Ponzi scheme that he was running with DC Solar. But the article completely misses the point that it's the government that is responsible for all this. And it is just more proof that we don't want government involved in the economy. We don't want government picking winners and losers when it comes to business because it just picks losers. You see, what this guy did is he invented a portable solar generator so that if you run out of power, you can just truck this generator in and it runs on solar power. And of course, the government loved this. Uh, President uh, Biden made this guy's company a partner of the U.S. government, you know, along with companies like, you know, Alphabet and Amazon. You know, he created some kind of 
uh, group of companies that, that were partners in the, the battle against climate change. And so this company was exactly uh, what you know the Democrats wanted because it was solar power, it was green energy, this was great. So they had the government's good housekeeping seal of approval. But what else they had from the government was a tax credit. Back in 2005, the government passed this accelerated tax credit for uh, solar. And whatever you spent on some solar product, you could get it a tax credit for 30% of the purchase price. So if you bought something for $100,000, you could take 30,000 and get a dollar for dollar credit right off the taxes. So if you owed 30,000 in taxes, you owe nothing, right? Because you spent, you invested $100,000 in, in, in this equipment, right? Um, well, what happened was this guy starts selling these mobile um, uh, solar generators for 150 grand a pop. And it only cost him a couple thousand dollars to make each one. So he's got this huge margin. And the way he was able to entice all these customers is he went to the customer and said, hey, all you got to do is put down 30%, which is the value of your tax credit, which was $45,000. So you give me $45,000 and you can buy one of these solar generators. And it's not going to cost you anything because you're going to get the $45,000 back from the government. So it's a freebie. What we're going to do is we're going to lease out your uh, portable solar generator to other people that need it. And the lease payments that you're going to get will more than cover the balance of what you owe on your purchase, plus you're going to get a return. And so this was like a no-brainer. I mean, you could be a good citizen. You can support global warming. You can make a free investment that where you come out of pocket $0. And any return you get is pure gravy because you've got no money tied up because you're just going to get rental income on these portable generators that you never even paid for. So he was selling a lot of these generators because nobody actually uh, was taking delivery. The problem was he couldn't find people to rent them because they didn't even really work. That was the problem. They couldn't be placed into service because they didn't work. And so what he ended up doing when he found out that his invention didn't work is he decided to turn the whole thing into a Ponzi scheme because he made so much money, right? It only costs you $2,000 to make a generator and you're selling it you know, for 45,000 is what you're actually getting, right? The 30% is way more than the things are worth. In fact, later on the IRS kind of evaluated uh, these generators and assigned a fair market value of $13,000 to what he was selling for 150,000. But no one gave a damn how much the price was because the government was paying for it because the companies who were buying them came out of pocket nothing. Right. So he figured out, okay, I can sell these um, generators and the money I get for selling the generators, I can use that money to pay the older buyers and pretend that I've got leases. And I'm going to use that money to make these lease payments. So everybody will think that I've actually leased out uh, these generators, but I haven't leased out anything. I'm just running this Ponzi scheme. And then the Ponzi scheme got went to another level because then he realized what's the point of making generators that nobody even uses who cares 
The buyers never see the generators. We don't actually have any real customers leasing them. So let's just stop making them. So then they saved money there. They didn't even make them anymore. And so the whole thing is a giant fraud. But the problem was, as more and more people got enticed into this great deal, he needed more and more people to come in so he can keep making the lease payments because he had a lot more people now that were expecting income from these leases that didn't exist. So the thing had to get bigger and bigger, which is the case with all Ponzi schemes until it eventually imploded. But I don't know if it imploded on its own. I forget, or if the government figured it out first and busted the guy, uh, but the whole thing collapsed. You know, now he's in jail. But the, the bottom line that I'm trying to get to here on this story is I'm reading this whole story and not once does this guy blame the government. It's all this bad guy that took advantage of the taxpayer, he ripped off the taxpayer. Now, the point of the matter is the government made all this possible. The government created the tax credits. Look, whenever the government does something like this, it's gonna be abused. I mean, this guy is just an extreme example of that abuse, but everything the government does is gonna be abused by its nature. Whenever the government creates a freebie, people are going to rearrange their circumstances to qualify it. The government comes in and distorts the market. The government decides that this is a great company and that people should buy their products, not the market. Then the government pays people to buy their products. This Ponzi scheme never would have happened but for the government tax credits. Take that out of the equation and this thing never would have happened. So I am not gonna blame this criminal. I'm gonna blame a criminal government that enabled his crime. Even if they didn't intend this to happen. Because again, it's not about good intentions. It's about actual outcome. And whenever the government does something like this, you know that there's gonna be uh, adverse consequences. Things are gonna happen that you don't anticipate because they never look at the moral hazards of any of their laws or any of their programs or understand how everything they do is going to be abused. Look, people should not get a tax credit uh, for anything that they do. I mean, people should, if we're going to have a tax, then it should be a fair tax and people would be paying the tax. But people have to make an investment based on its merits, whether or not it's actually viable, whether or not it actually adds value. You don't want to entice people to do things that destroy value just because they get a tax break, because that is encouraging uh, inefficient, uneconomic behavior that collectively lowers uh, the standard of living of everybody in the country. This is the real message from that story. But again, it's completely lost on the journalists at The Atlantic because none of these guys are suspicious of government. They probably look at this and say, oh, just another greedy capitalist ripping off people, ripping off the taxpayers. You know, No, this is an example of government <laughs> ripping off the country of why government needs to get out of the business again of picking winners and losers and subsidizing uh, certain businesses and then punishing others. The government needs to uh, be neutral and stay out. Again, so just like the media ignores what's going on uh, with Biden, they ignore uh, the adverse consequences of the so-called well-intentioned uh, government regulations. So the only place you're really gonna get and an honest assessment of what's going on is, you know, in alternative media, places like the Peter Schiff Show podcast. So keep on listening. Oh, by the way, 
I, my interview that I did with uh, Jordan uh, Peterson is up online. Now, it's been out for not quite a week. I recorded it a few weeks ago. And so if you haven't watched it, you can go on uh, YouTube and watch it. I've almost got a million views on that now. And so if you watch it and share it with your friends, we could go over the top and, and go above a million. We're, we're probably going to get there anyway, but uh, it, it, it'll help. You know, if you've been watching and listening to me for years, there's nothing really new that I'm getting into. I was trying to be very basic in this interview because I know that I'm talking to a lot of people who have never heard me before. So it's kind of like an introduction, uh, you know, to Shiftonomics, right? Just kind of by, you know, letting people know uh, my thought process. And hopefully some of the people who are listening to tonight's podcast uh, are brand new listeners. Maybe they didn't know about me and they learned about me uh, through the Jordan Peterson uh, podcast. And so I would welcome you and hopefully you stick around and keep on listening. Uh, and I think that the Jordan Peterson interview is a good one to share because it's very basic and I introduce a lot of points. It's a good uh, interview to share with other people that you're trying to encourage uh, to listen to my podcast, maybe share with them this Jordan Peterson interview, and it may uh, it may prompt them to start also listening to the podcast. Again, the reason I'm not going to do a podcast on Sunday, I am going to be in Orlando for Rebel Capitalist uh, Live with George Gammon. That's the first conference I've kind of been to in the States for a while. I'm kind of getting back into it. You know, after COVID, I kind of took a step back, and now I'm going to start doing a few of these again. And so I'm doing this uh, Rebel Capital Live. You know, several people who are my neighbors here in Puerto Rico are also going to be in Orlando. You got Mike Maloney, uh, Simon Black, Brent Johnson. Those three guys also live here in Puerto Rico. So the four of us, along with many others, are going to be speaking, including uh, my son, uh, Spencer. Uh, so uh, I look forward to uh, meeting whoever is going to be there. I don't know if there's still room for some last minute uh, signups at that conference, but hopefully, you know, uh, you know, I'll be there. He'll be there and we'll get to meet you. My whole family is going to be down in Orlando because they're going to be spending some time at Disney World. And, you know, I want to finish up the podcast. I want to give a little plug to our guide at Disney. I mentioned him once before on the podcast. I think a few listeners ended up using him, but it, it really improves the Disney experience. You know, Disney itself, the theme park, you could pay something like $5,000 a day, some crazy amount of money, and they'll give you a guide and you can avoid the lines. Well, this guy does it for a fraction of that cost and you will wait on no lines. I've, I've used him several times and we go on all the popular rides two or three times. We just go right into the fast pass on every, on every ride and it really improves the experience because I don't like waiting on lines. I don't like spending two hours on a line. Uh, and, and so if you hire this guy, you're not waiting on any lines. And even though it's more expensive, you know, it's considered having him there for the day is more than, you know, the, the, the cost of admission. But it actually could save money because you could do in one day what it would take at least three, maybe more to do without him because of all the lines you'd be standing on. You know, so if you want to go on the popular rides, you know, you could do an entire theme park in one day and do a lot of rides twice. So you could save yourself, you know, maybe a couple of days worth of hotel costs and tickets. And of course, if your time is valuable, well, you save a tremendous amount of time. So if you're interested in this guy's service, you can email him at mydisneyguy at gmail.com. He's not a paid sponsor. I, I mean, I, I just, you know, 
I was happy because somebody told me about him. I found out about him through word of mouth and it was great. And so I've been using him ever since. And so I'm doing my listeners a favor uh, by letting him know if you're going to be in Disney World, uh, you need to give uh, my Disney guy uh, a try. Again, it's my Disney guy at gmail.com. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening. I will be back again maybe a week from today uh, with another podcast. So see you then.